Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Something else. Hello and welcome to Out to Lunch, the podcast where I chat to utterly brilliant people over a few brilliant courses of fabulous food. Today I'm joined by someone who's called himself a jobbing actor but who to everyone else is every bit the movie star. He came to fame in the 80s TV smash hit The Jewel in the Crown and has since gone on to have a massively varied career working with the likes of Meryl Streep, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Eddie Murphy. More recently he's played Tywin Lannister in Game of Thrones and Lord Mountbatten in The Crown. It's the actor, writer and director Charles Dance. F. Murray Abraham and I were in the makeup trailer one day, talking rather pompously about European art films or something, you know. <laughs> and Arnold came in and overheard this conversation. He said, you know, you know, you need the money you're making my movies to make the art films. And he said, yes, you're absolutely right, Arnold. And he said, I make films for the polyester people. <laughs> For this episode of Out to Lunch, we have come to the Hoban Dining Rooms, which is part of the Rosewood Hotel on High Hoban in London. It is the restaurant of a brilliant chef called Callum Franklin, who is famed, and I mean properly famed, for his pie work. Uh, he's done a book on pies, look it up, it's terrific. And he has a pie room. Now, normally at lunchtime, what they do is they use it as a servery for takeaways, but not today. They've let us take over the pie room with its marble top table and all its brass and copperware. It should be said. We're in the centre of London. The Piccadilly line is rumbling underneath us. So that's the warning. However, there is a pie in my future and there is a pie in Charles Dance's future. And I can tell you from experience, it's going to be very good indeed. Charles, I'm very well. See you. Welcome to the pie room. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm intrigued. I've not been here before. Can I get you any teas, coffee, drinks? Do you want water? Just water, still water would be great for me, yes. Great. Can I start you with some bread? Um, yeah, if you like. If you like. Yeah, go yes, ahead. I yeah. Actually, I had to ask a question. You're an actor of great experience. You've also directed, you directed Ladies in Lavender. Yeah. You had a minor cast there, just Judy Dench. Yes, Brady indeed. Yeah. Uh, who else was in that? Toby Jones was in that. Was it? A small part, yes. Miriam Margulies and Daniel Brewer was a wonderful German actor. How was that? And what was it that propelled you to want to... I was... I you just, wrote the piece as well, didn't you? Yeah, I was sat... I think I was in Budapest and sitting on a library set waiting for the cinematographer to finish lighting, you know, and there were loads of books, and I thought, oh, I took one of these books down. A volume of short stories. And I just kept coming back to this little story about two old women in Cornwall. And I just... The more I read it, and I just... 
had images kept coming. I thought, I can do this. From starting to write it to turning over took six months. Which is extraordinary. It is, absolutely. How? Why? What happened? Well, Did you I just, just Because I, I kind of oh. knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to move the date from it. It was set in the 20s. I thought, no, this has got to be about 37, 38, just before the Second World War. If I can get Judy Dench and Maggie Smith, that'd be great. So I got to about draft three and went to see Judy and uh, said, will you have a read, read this, Judy? Yeah, I said, all right, darling. And she said, yes, I'd rather like it. I'll do this. I said, really? Oh, Jude, how wonderful. And I went to Maggie, gave it to her, and she said, is Jude going to do it? I said, yes. She said, all right, well, I'll do it then. And Maggie called it Lavender Bags. So how long did you shoot for? Did you keep it very compact? I think I had 36 shooting days, actually. Um, and we were down in Cornwall. And I found this house on a cliff with a beach below it. I got the best caterer that we of could. Of course you did. No. <clears throat> the man I wanted to do the catering rang me up. He's a wonderful guy called Guy Cowan. And I'm, I'm going to plug him. He has two restaurants in Glasgow now. There's Guys and We Guys, which is his bistro, right? He'd be up at five o'clock every morning down at the fish market in Penzance. Lunchtime, there would be langoustine and, you know, lobster and whatever else. It was fantastic. What form does directing take when you're well, among your peers? I didn't have very much directing to do with Judy Dench and Maggie Smith, let's face it. It was this one day, the, the scene just between the two of them, and Judy was being uncommonly sentimental. She's never sentimental. And she was sitting on the bed and I knelt down, put my hand on her knee and I said, Jude, it's a bit Celia Johnson-ish. And she said, how dare you and get your hand off my knee. <laughs> <laughs> and did she then take the note and, and change her performance? Yeah, yeah, and it was great. So, do you want to have a look at the men? Oh, go on, yes. I'll have some, I'll have some of the gin-cured salmon to start. Chicken, chestnut, mushroom and tarragon pie. Chicken, bacon. And I'll, I'm going to go actually double pork just because I know they're both very good. I'll have the scotch egg and the, uh, the hand-raised pork pie. And some truffle and parmesan fries. And then a long sleep in the afternoon. <laughs> you did yeah. a... Film which was released in 29, Fanny yes. Lied Delivered, yeah. Yeah. roughly set in the period of Puritanism around the English Civil War. Exactly, yes. Um, and the director, as I understand it, was a great believer in authenticity on set. Indeed, Thomas Clay, yes. yes. What did he feed you? I, I got the impression that he extended it even to some of the food you had to eat on set. Well, I don't know that he was responsible necessarily for that. I've got to the point now, my, my age, but I, I, I kind of don't care about um, offending people. <laughs> Excellent, um, that's, you know, that's why you're the perfect guest for this you know, I, I don't extend that to people I love and care for, but people that I don't have much regard for. And um, uh, it was the worst catering that I've ever had to endure on that film. It was disgusting. And I, I've, having been involved on the other side of the camera myself, I know it's a false economy to try to save money on catering. Because you know, is the terrible cliched expression, but the regiment marches on its stomach. And if you're asking a crew to work from six o'clock in the morning until gone eight o'clock at night in not very clement weather, the least you can do is feed them properly. 
I can't really hold Thomas Clay responsible. You see, for I that. thought that he he had started feeding you sort of. 17th century potage and things like that to try and keep you in the mood? Or no, I, I think probably 17th century potage would have been rather delightful compared to what we were actually given. Yeah, no. No, he was just concerned about um, the way the set was built, the way the set looked, uh, the costumes we were wearing. You know, I mean, I, one of my jackets, I think, had about 50 buttons down the front, and I think... God, give me Velcro. You know, an audience is never going to know whether these buttons are actually sewn and buttoned up. So it was basically method, method costumes. Yes, method costume, method set. But the end result is a really rather wonderful film, but it was a bit of a nightmare to make. You, you trained as an artist, or you were, doing tra you were training as an artist. Graphic design and photography is what I did at art school, yes. But found your way through an interest. To Leonard and Martin. Indeed, very good. Yeah. I knew about these two men from a friend of mine who, who, who we were both of an age, we were about 16, you know, and we were buddies and we used to hang about. Stephen, his name was, and I said to him one day, you know, what are you going to do? And he said, I'm going to be an actor. He said, yes, I'm going to RADA. I didn't know what RADA was. I didn't know anything about drama schools. Anyway, cut a long story short, he was coached for his RADA audition by Leonard and Martin. I spent about two years with them, and they, they, we worked our way through Shakespeare and Shaw and Beckett. I'd buy Leonard two pints of beer a lesson. Martin, I would dig the garden for. And uh, Martin would sit on an old tree stump and uh, dispense words of wisdom. And, so, and, and I'd be digging away, usually with a cigarette hanging out the corner of my mouth. And Martin one day said, Charlie, why don't you stop the digging and sit down and enjoy your cigarette? Because at the moment, you're not digging very well and you're not enjoying the cigarette. <laughs> Little pearls of wisdom like that. And, and Martin kind of helped me move better because like a lot of reasonably tall people, my posture wasn't great. And so we used to do ballet exercises using the bar in front of the argo cooker. You went, I mean, you went back, what, two or, at one point, two or three times a week? Twice a week, and, and, uh, and then I think every other Sunday, if I remember rightly. All right, starters are arriving. Look at this, how wonderful. It's called the gin cured salmon. Comes Thank with you. some Guinness sort of red. Thank you. And the Scotch egg. Thank Love you. Stuff. Thank you very much, man. Oh. I've done a load of podcasts for Al Jazeera. I don't get food for them. Do you not? No, you know, no, that's no. What we, get, we get a better quality of, of guests yes. on this one, and I think it's specifically because we cater. Uh, it's we cater, We cater well. It's a wonderful idea. You said that the technical art training that you'd done mm. represented an interest you had in the image and the lens. Yeah, yeah. Having watched the films of Peter Finch and also Steve McQueen, because a whole bunch of us down in Plymouth, we were crazy for Steve McQueen. I mean, I saw every Steve McQueen film. It doesn't matter what it was, it was a Steve McQueen right. film, we go and see Ricky. Steve. Best Steve McQueen film? Well, actually, the very first one that I saw, which was it's called Hell is for Heroes, a black and white film. Ooh. And the minute Steve McQueen appeared, you thought, oh my God, this Jeep draws up outside a building, and sitting in the back is this guy, and he gets out the Jeep and walks, and walks into the building. The energy in that moment was just phenomenal. And there was something about, I mean, Steve McQueen had star quality. Whether he was the greatest actor in the world is debatable, but he was a movie star, you know? What does that mean? It means that you have something that 
ordinary people don't possess. You have something called presence. That when the minute you walk into a room, people are aware of your presence. There are some people who don't have the any more presence than a glass of water. It's unfortunate. Other people have have a have a presence. Star quality. Now, of course, it it also encompasses your ability to put bums on seats in a, sure. a theatre and make money for producers. Uh, are you accepting of the proposition that you have presence? I know that I have a certain degree of presence, whether that's to do with my height, the peculiar way that I look, or if I have any kind of reputation. All of those things work together. But there, there is a, a great story of you saying to Robert Altman on the set of Gosford Park, that given your background, you should really be below stairs. And he said, not with that face, Charles. Indeed, yeah. The staging post in your CV, obviously, Guy Perron in Jewel in the Crown. Yeah. Based on the Raj Quartet, written by Paul Scott. Indeed. The Jewel in the Crown is set towards the end of British rule of India, isn't it? Yes, it is, yeah, yeah. Just before partition of India. How long did it take to make? Filming was about 18 months. I was in India for four months. It, as you didn't turn up until episode... 10 yeah. or 14. I mean, we're talking an enormous slab yeah. of TV. Yes. Destination television on a Sunday night. I think, yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it, it, it kind of got a following very, very quickly. It did, yes. So did that make you very excited about the fact that they, they ain't seen nothing yet because I'm coming? Or did you think, oh, Christ, am I going to fuck this up? <laughs> Which one was it? The latter, actually. I thought, oh, my God. Wow. I'm coming in on the on the crest of a wave here. Uh, I hope I can surf it. It had taken a while. Had yeah. you at any point sort of thought, is this really going where I want it to go? Or uh, your career? Or were you very happy with it? I'm a bit of a fatalist, you know. I think things happen when they're meant to happen, you know. There's a story that Michael Caine came up to you in a yeah. restaurant and well, what did he say to at you? At the Connaught. Yeah. At the Connaught Dive. With, with Joe, my, my late ex-wife. And, um, and I sat there and Joe said to me, she said, Michael Caine has just come in. I said, oh, really? What? Had you met him before? No. I came and sat there. And, and this voice, he said, excuse me. <laughs> he said, you're Charles Dance. And I said, uh, yes, Mr Caine, I am. He said, I've got money on you. I said, look, thank you very much. Thank you. That was it. As you're, in, you're, you're going to be a thing. success. Yeah, I've got money on. Was this post Guy on? Yeah, yeah. Did you come out of that thinking, well, Michael Caine says it's going to be the next big thing? <laughs> or did you think, I was thinking, well, that's nice. I've got approval from Michael Caine. Should be okay. I hope he's right. There's a, a point where you did White Mischief, set in, in uh, amid, yeah, amid the sort of colonial crowd in Kenya. Yes. Great movie. Yeah. At that point, you sort of said you could have grabbed at something but didn't. Indeed. I, I, I think somebody said to me, you know, you should be in L.A., go to L.A. No. Right. Um, I have you know, two grown-up children, 47 and 41, and I think, you know, they were at that age when I thought, well, you know, I don't want to, forgive me, bugger off to L.A. on my own. Uh, I don't want to uproot the kids and go there. So if I can stay here and have a career, that's what I would rather do. You made a clear decision then? Yeah, I, I could have, in, you know, joined the ranks of those English actors who go out there and go up in, in the hills behind, you know, by, by the Hollywood sign and they play cricket on the weekend and perhaps moan about L.A. and 
you know, and, and or, or, or sit and, you know, by the pool reading scripts, nine out of ten are going to be dreadful scripts, you know, with a climate that never really changes unless it rains and then people go mad. And, you know, I'm, I'm not a great lover of L.A. and... Um, I've, I've been there to work, and when the job is finished, I get on the plane and I come back. I, I, I've never had a great desire to live there. Well, you did uh, Last Action Hero with Schwarzenegger. Yeah. Oh, that's a proper big Hollywood action yes. movie. Yeah. Is that stuff fun? The is catering it? is fantastic. <laughs> well, that's all I care about. On American films, the catering is great. And I, I did two things back-to-back once in L.A. There's a film with Eddie Murphy called The Golden Child. I'd done a television series with Shirley MacLaine that was shot in some bit, some in LA and then in Hawaii and then Scandinavia. I mean, I've, really, I've travelled, luckily, in this business. How was Schwarzenegger to work with? He was great, Arnold, you know. I mean, we were... Um, F. Murray Abraham and I were in the makeup trailer one day. Probably talking rather pompously about European art films or something, <laughs> you know. And Arnold came in and overheard this conversation, he said, you know, you know, you need the money you're making my movies to make the art films. And he said, yes, you're absolutely right now. And he said, I make films for the polyester people. For polyester people? For the people. polyester people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You once described the difference between British acting and American acting. Mm. The British is sort of a collaborative exercise. Yeah. And American is more of a contact sport. It is, yeah, in my experience, yeah, yeah. Does that mean you're fighting for, for time on the lens in the edit with the other people on set? You're, you're just very aware that don't depend on your fellow actor to give you any more than he is prepared to give for himself. A lot of the time. It's kind of like the Battle of Waterloo. It's every man for himself, really. You know? Do you think that's why British actors actually do so well in Hollywood? I, I recently, <clears throat> on, on this podcast, talked to Rafe, <clears throat> Rafe Spall. Yeah. Um, who was very interesting on that and talked about doing a scene with Toby Jones. Right. Both of them playing American accents. Yeah. And how that must have driven American actors absolutely nuts. I'm sure. Yeah. Well, the competition is so fierce over there. To their credit, when they're not working, the good American actors, and I'm not talking about, you know, older people like Jack Nicholson and, you know, people of that ilk, I'm doing young actors. When they're out of work, they're going to classes, they're going to movement classes, they're going, they're going to the gym, you know. And this obsession with getting a buffed body, I mean, you know, it's, it's all to do with vanity. Um, and, but, you know, they, they work hard because they're determined to succeed. You know, most of the car drivers, the waiters in LA, they've either got a script under their arm because they're screenwriters or they're an actor just waiting for their next job. Uh, uh, it's, it's too much. It's Exhausting, isn't it? It is. Yes, it is. Although yeah. you, you say that about them, you know, doing classes, going to the gym, and all of that. Yeah. yeah. As an actor on camera, yeah, you've surely had to look after yourself of, all the way through your. Yeah. Life. Oh sure. Yeah, but there is a limit, you know. I mean, there's an actor who. I, I, I'm very fond of him, and I've known him since he was about that high. He said, indicating a three child, feet yeah. off the ground. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, it was a production of Romeo and Juliet. And he was playing Romeo, and the scene, you know, the balcony scene, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo? And at this point, this actor had managed to, some, I don't know why, but his shirt was off, you know, <laughs> and, 
And I, I just felt like when Juliet is saying, wherefore art thou, Romeo? I felt like saying, he's in the gym, darling, be with you in half an hour. Um, you know, and I mean, his, his abs were clearly defined. I mean, everything. And I think you could only achieve that kind of body if you go to a gym. This is not the, the body of somebody who lives a normal life. I'm going to pick this up in a second because right. main courses are approaching. Look at this. Oh, yes. Pie. Pork pie. Thank you. And the chicken pie. How wonderful. Yes, you can. Never say no to gravy. What a treat. Uh, so you've got, is it the chicken and tarragon pie? Yeah. Right. yeah. And I've got a hand-raised pork pie. Indeed you have. Um, yeah. With gravy. Right. Well, pies yeah. are good things. Wonderful. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Um, I have to say, and this, I don't know if this is intruding on private, on, on, on private grief. Go on. You're talking about sort of buff, buff young men. Yeah. You got papped not too long ago, coming out the sea. I know, yes. I let my uh, guard drop, yes. Now, yeah. two, two thoughts occurred to me when I saw that. Yeah. One was, that must be a nice pain in the ass, and the other one was, blimey, Charles, you look all right. All right, okay. Did, 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 now, you've said that you got packed in that way and it was bloody annoying. But did you look at the picture and thinking, well, casting agent's going to look at that and thinking, I've still got it. Well, I, I, no, no, I didn't think that. I, I literally thought, oh, bugger, you know, drop my guard because, yeah, he was on the tabloids and they got some mileage out of it. It was about five days, you know, and tabloid newspapers, they, they you know, they piggyback off... off of each other, you know. I thought, oh God, please, someone else come along, and then something else happened and disappeared. Look, it's a lot of it has to do with genes. I've never had a weight problem, right? I'm very lucky in that regard, and I know it's important to keep myself in reasonably good shape. But I hate going to gyms. I've got equipment at home which I use. I swim on a regular basis, and I, I ride a bike, and that's what I do. Is it a balancing act? If you are to be, you know, an actor on camera. You know, we, we shouldn't retire, because if we retire, then there's nobody to play old wrinkly people. And I'm now of an age where I'm old enough to play interesting characters that a few years ago I was too young to play. I can remember, I can remember Shirley MacLaine, bless her, saying she was going to be doing something and to make her look older than she was... And she said, so, you know, if I start doing that now, she said, it'll be quite a normal thing for when I get to that age. Oh, quite clever. She's yeah, very clever. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, she's eccentric. Well, tell me what the project was with Shirley MacLaine, because I'm not aware of that one. It's, it's called Out on a Limb. And it was a TV thing or a film? Television. This is the first of her autobiographical works, basically centering around the affair she had with um, a politician. You know, Shirley, everything is talked about in metaphysical terms. And I, I mean, Shirley persuaded me to go to a channeling session at her house. Well, you have to come to this, Charlie. You're going to come to this channeling session. Well, I said, all right, Shirley. I went and uh, got there early and then she said, he'll be here in a minute. Anyway, the bell rings. And she said, she said he's wonderful. She said, he, he, he channels an 18th century Scottish-Irish pickpocket and, 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 and a Shakespearean actor. I said, oh, wow, OK. And By channeling this, is picking up the past life of uh, someone who has died. Taking in, just yeah. summoning up a presence. OK. Anyway, uh, the bell rings and she goes out uh, the door and this man comes in. A really, really uh, awful kind of chocolate brown suit, almost like a kind of demob suit, you know, and, and a fedora. And uh, I mean, she introduced me to him and he kind of looked at me suspiciously and then she said, do you want something to eat? He said, no, just give me chocolate, chocolate, I want chocolate. And he sits down and got his chocolate and Shirley's on the floor kneeling at his feet with a kind of dictaphone thing to record and I'm sitting watching. Is there anybody else there? Is it no, just, just the two of us and, well, three uh, of us, three of us. And then two more people. <laughs> From the other side. Then, yeah. And then, and uh, so he started to breathe and hyperventilate. The fedora was off by this time, and he had rather thinning hair, which is why he's got to wore the fedora, obviously. Uh, hyperventilating. And he threw his head back. And then comes out with, top of the morning. And Shirley said, it's a Scottish-Irish pickpocket. I said, oh, yes, well, and I don't know what he waffled on about. And then he went away. And then, good evening, how wonderful to see you. And this is a Shakespearean actor. And I said, oh, right, OK. It was the worst piece of vaudeville I'd ever <laughs> seen. <laughs> You're given the impression that um, Meryl Streep was rather less willing to get you round to her house for a spot of channeling. Yeah. That was plenty? Yes, it was. Um, I thought. At that point, when you did interviews, you should be honest. Ah. <laughs> Barry Norman was standing outside the cinema where the premiere of Plenty happened in New York. How was it working with Meryl Streep? And I said, not easy. I mean, you know, done these big premieres all over the world. Is he crazy? Is he mad? What is he saying? You know? Listen. I absolutely adore Meryl. She's incredible. Uh, she, you know, she is a truly great actress. But working with her was not easy. She wasn't unpleasant or nasty to me, but um, it was, we didn't have much to say to each other, you know? And I would have preferred it if, the, if what was on the screen was as a result of our relationship rather than in spite of it. But I have the greatest respect for her, and I perhaps shouldn't have said that. <laughs> OK, so, <laughs> Meryl, if you're listening... <laughs> well, I've seen her since. She came to see me. I did Long Day's Journey Into Night in town with Jessica Lang, and I knew she was in, and I thought, oh, my God, I hadn't seen her since. Anyway, she came up to the dressing room, and she couldn't have been nicer, actually. So, I mean, she's forgiven me. 
the hope. When Game of Thrones came along, yeah. what I don't think people generally understand is it did result in you spending quite a lot of time in Northern Ireland. Yeah, Belfast. Uh, that's where it was mostly shot, wasn't it? Hmm. Um, hmm. When the role came along, you, you, you've not complained, but you've sort of indicated, A, you seem to get a lot of roles as aristocrats and baddies. Yeah. And they don't get more aristocratic and bad than Tyrone Lannister. No. Um, or do you look at that and go, well, this looks like it'll be a laugh? Well, yeah. I rather liked Tyrone, you know. I mean, he was basically, you know, he was... It was, a, it was a, although fictional, a feudal society, and, you know, and he, he was fighting for the status quo and his position and the family and all that, and um, well, there was some humour in it from time to time that I rather liked. Yeah. I've always thought of it actually as being a companion piece to the West Wing. It's very political. And, and yeah. Yes, yes. A lot of your role was about statecraft. Yes. Rather than maidens and chopping heads off. Yeah. At what point did it, did it become clear that this was a big show? It's when poor Sean Bean had his head chopped off. He plays Ned Stark, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah. yeah Sean Bean gets off at the end of series one, doesn't he? Indeed, yeah, very early on, yes. Which is quite audacious, given he's a character you're fully invested in, and then they kill him. Yes, well, that's... But they kept doing that, you know? And that's what I... Th that had a lot to do with keeping the audience with it. But it was an awful lot of fun. The other, the other one... When you heard that Netflix was making The Crown... Hmm. Another one of those series which was bound to provide a lot of good employment for British actors... <clears throat> yeah. Did it occur to you, early on, that Mountbatten had to feature, and they surely had to come for you. No, I thought people were talking about early on that I should play Philip. And the way, you know, the shape of my face and so on, and what's happening to my hair, it's sort of more Philip. And by the time they started thinking about me to do it, I was too old to play Philip. Right. Um, and then they needed somebody to play Mountbatten, so when I was asked to do that, I thought, well, okay, Mountbatten's a quite a nice character. Well, pity that he gets blown to pieces, but that's okay. A lot of your characters die, Charles. I've, I've died in almost everything I've done, Jay. Really? Do you flick through a script to see which page you're off to? <laughs> My girlfriend, bless her, she says, <laughs> do you die? And I said, yeah, right, so... <laughs> <laughs> Hang on, we're being given the dessert menu, Charles. Right, okay. I'll have the strawberry and the champagne jelly. Strawberry and champagne jelly? Or yes, sauce? please. And I'll have the pavlova, please. So other projects that you've, you've been working on? They're, they're there. I'm trying to raise the money for them. I've got close two or three times now. You know, if, if it happens, great. If not, I know. I had this, this same conversation with Gary Oldman recently. And the last thing I did in America was do it with Gary. And was he, that Mank, the yeah, David Fincher? Yeah, and, and, and he made a really rather wonderful film years ago called Nil by Mouth about his upbringing. And, um, you know, and Gary's extraordinary, wonderful, wonderful actor and a really sweet man. And he said, you know, he said, it's really, really difficult, but, you know, never mind. I've got my day job. And you mentioned Mank. David Fincher, yes. you've described as one of the, the great directors. Yes. He's fantastic. And you worked with him first on the third of the Alien yeah. franchise. That's his first film. With a, a, a marvellous buzz cut. The only love interest that Sigourney Weaver's character has ever had in the whole Alien franchise. And then Mank, yeah. which is, uh, if anybody's seen it, just need 
extraordinary love letter to film as yeah, much is, as yeah. anything else. Yeah. How many shots would you have done? You played William Randolph Hearst. Yeah. It's a big dinner party scene. Yeah. Old, Oldman, Gary Oldman's character, he's playing Herman Mankiewicz. 45 takes. 45 takes of him raging and drunk and throwing up on the floor. Yeah. 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 I mean, that strikes me as a marathon, both for Oldman, who has yeah. to do it, yeah. but also for you to sit there and be as stoical and yeah. still as you are. Concentration. I mean, Fincher, he is a film animal from the top of his head to the soles of his feet. And he can talk to anybody, any department about their job. And never less than four cameras. Composition is all. And so, you know, you, you do a take and two of the cameras, things are right, and two of them, they're not quite right. So we go again. Then those two are okay, and that one's all right, and then that one's off. So you go through quite a few takes until the composition is there. Then you'll start thinking about the acting, right? So it's up to all of us to basically stay there with him, because even though we, we might moan and whinge about it, you know that the end result is going to be a really rather wonderful film. How do you hold it together, the patience with that? If he was with a lesser director, you know, and you go, we're doing six, seven, eight takes, I want to know the reason why, you know. And, um, but with Fincher, no, we, we would all do it because he's a genius. I really do think he is. What's upcoming? Oh, well, I've done an adaptation of one of Neil Gaiman's graphic novels uh, called Sandman. But I have rather an interesting character in that. That's eagerly awaited. There's a lot of publicity around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We did that at Shepparton. Um, I've, the last thing I did was in France, playing a pope, Clement VII, who took poor 14-year-old Caterina de' Medici over to France to marry the 14-year-old son of the King of France at the time. That was fun. Before that, I, I did um, a film with Matthew Vaughan, which is a kind of prequel to the Kingsman franchise that was enormous fun. Very clever man, Matthew. And Do you have uh, hopes for this one? Have you seen a cut yet? I have seen it. I think it's wonderful. He sent me this email saying, I want to send you this. He said, tiny, tiny pot. But, and then he told me all the other people who were in it also playing tiny parts. And I emailed, read it, and I said, yeah, all right, Matthew, I'll do that. Great. Excellent. So. Well, look, I'm, I'm delighted that there's lots more to come. Um, as we get into our desserts, all that remains for me to say is Charles Dance, thank you very much for coming out to lunch with me. Thank you so much for asking me. It's been a pleasure, Jay. Marvellous. Well, who knew that eating pies with Charles Dance could be so much fun? Uh, and a huge thank you to Chef Callum Franklin and the whole team at The Pie Room, which is part of the Holborn Dining Rooms at the Rosewood Hotel in Holborn, London. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode, there's more, so much more. The likes of Rafe Spall, Kathy Burke, Guy Garvey, all of them breaking bread with me. Uh, do have a listen and why not review us? Give us five stars. Recommend the episodes to your friends. You know it makes sense. It does help us to make more. Out to Lunch is a Something Else and Jay Rayner production. The music was written, arranged and performed by me, Jay Rayner and Robert Rickenberg. The recording engineer was Paul Brogdon and the mix engineer was Josh Gibbs. Jemima Rathbone is assistant producer. The producer is Selena Ream and the executive producer is Darby Doris. Additional production is from Steve Ackerman. Next time, it's the mummy and gladiator actor and brilliant stand-up comedian... Omid Jalili. So I got up on the stage. This is the Kodak Theatre where they have the Oscars. In LA. 
there's 2,000 people there. And I said, ladies and gentlemen, I just want to say that was me. I just died up there. And I want to tell you all, if the projector does not come back on, don't worry. After my death, the film is a piece of shit. It's all downhill. You're missing nothing. 